into dignity Did it go away again? Just like some worn out trend Will I still defend emotions? What happened to honesty? I don't see it in the top ten You know, producers can make magic happen. They're like the David Blaines of the music industry. And if they do their job right, they can pretty much make anyone with no talent sound like they got it. And if they screw it up, they can make somebody with a lot of talent sound like they don't got it. And despite the thousands of graduates and so forth that kind of come out of full sale in the Los Angeles music school and stuff like that, there's only like a select few of them uh, that will ever actually end up being like on speed dial for a lot of the major artists within the industry as far as like producers go. And record producer John Feldman is pretty much considered one of those speed dial guys. He's, I've had a couple of people tell me that they see him as the go-to guy now uh, within the record industry for kind of going in and taking a basic song and taking it above and beyond where anyone expected it to go. Um, you may actually remember Feldman's name um, from being associated with uh, the used records. Um, in 2004, he did In Love and Death. In 2007, he did Lies for the Liars. I think he's going to be involved with the next one. Uh, but he's produced a lot of different artists. He's done Good Charlotte. He's done Atreyu, Lost Prophets, Mest, Story of the Year, Ashley Simpson, Hilary Duff, The Matches, The Veronicas, City Sleeps, Cute is What We Aim For, and so forth and so on. Um, he's also written a number of songs too with a number of these bands and you know one of the ones that I, I forgot completely about uh, was that he co-authored uh, Good Charlotte's Anthem uh, off their 2002 uh, the Young and the Hopeless record. Um, so uh, he's an A&R rep for Warner Brothers Records and he signed Mest and he signed Story of the Year, The Used he signed and Josephine Collective so he's really obviously tied into the Used camp but you know ultimately He's really best known for singing and playing guitar uh, for that punk rock ska punk anthem band Goldfinger, um, who, you know, they kind of write, they have all those songs that are kind of jokey, kind of like in a Blink-182 no-effects way, uh, and uh, like uh, uh, My Girlfriend's Shower Sucks and things like that. I mean, just those kind of song titles are just funny. And they've been doing it for about 14 years now. And they just put out their seventh record called Hello Destiny, uh, back in April of this year, 2008. I did not know this, um, but uh, he's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for playing 385 shows in one year, and it was 1996. He's a vocal pro proponent for veganism and animal rights, and uh, he's won numerous awards from PETA and other organizations, and he's actually had his home raided by the FBI one time, uh, and he actually wrote about this in the Goldfinger song Iron Fist that was on their 2005 record Disconnection Notice. He's also a supporter of the Animal Liberation Front. Uh, earlier this year, Feldman again was hired uh, to work on the single Dear Child, I've Been Dying to Reach You uh, off of the new solo record by Circus Survive frontman Anthony Green. And that's where our conversation began. This is Mike Shea. Yeah, we were actually wondering upstairs uh, what you did with the Anthony's, the new record? Um, he's having a solo record that's right. coming out on, um, 
Finish. What's his right. name? I forget the. They don't even know. Some photo label. finish. Atlantic. Photo finish. Okay, yeah. yeah, brand new label or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. I had written a song with him when he was still singing for Sayosin, probably. Okay. Three years ago, maybe more. I don't know. And I, I just, I mean, I loved that band. I mean, I loved him. You know, yeah. I loved his whole thing. It was just like I hadn't seen a front man like him in probably, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think Bert definitely has that, like, you know, why, whatever you call it, that kind of X factor that, 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 like, there's maybe 10 or 20 front men of all time in the music you know kind of in music and, and Anthony had that just I was just like mesmerizing like kind of Perry Pharrell kind of I don't know definitely has like some some Morrissey but yet some you know Dennis from Refuse just he's just like he's just like encapsulates everything with that mm -hmm. voice it's just like androgynous sort of like mm -hmm. high kind of thing and I, I just I wanted to sign Sayosin and produce their record you know and they have a producer in the band Bo who was really kind of you know had mm -hmm. his heart set on producing that record so it never really panned out but I got to spend a weekend with Anthony came over to my house for three days you know um and we just wrote this song i think it's called dying to reach you i'm not quite sure what mm -hmm. he ended up finished you know calling it but we, we recorded it you know I, I brought over my friend scott who's a bass player for weezer and, and my friend dean who was playing with morrissey at the time and we just kind of mm -hmm. got together arranged it you know and, and anthony and i wrote it and just recorded it in two days just kind of had the whole thing finished and then it never did anything it was just like you know kind of sat around until anthony had this solo record deal mm -hmm. i guess it's just, just coming out matt galley that's his name yeah 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 um and uh, and he called me and said, hey, I want to put this on the record. You know, the rest of the record's all kind of ambient, just yeah. acoustic, like mellow. And then this one song's got drums and it's, you know, and uh, and of course, you know, and I mean, I, I really, really believe in Anthony. You know, mm -hmm. I just believe he's he could be one of our, our saviors, you know, the, uh -huh. the state of the music business right now. He's really one of those guys that just you cannot you know, deny when he's on stage, there's nothing else you're watching, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it was an honor and, and I really hope to, to make a, a whole solo record with him someday, you know, but we'll see what happens. You know, uh, I, I was thinking about um, going on a Warped Tour and, um, and taking a look at the mixture between the young kids that are on Warped Tour and then, and then all uh, of the uh, us old timers uh, that have been around. And, you know, one of the big questions I've always kind of had, I've had with Kevin Lyman, I've had with other people too, is is, is there a way to kind of grow older as a punk rocker and do it with class? I mean, obviously, Green Day have been successful, right? I mean, they're, they're to me, they're um, the quintessential rock band and they're, you know, I don't know, top three favorite bands of mine of all time. This is, I mean, I really believe that Billy Joe Armstrong is kind of the Lennon McCartney of this, the last couple generations, you know, right. being able to kind of write current, you know, issues and really still be an amazing live performer mm -hmm. and be able to put on a show and tour and keep it together. The same band, like essentially like, you know, the who and, mm -hmm. and kind of the great, um, you know, old seventies bands. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about that all the time. Like, you know, punk rock in general, it's like, I mean, how can you be late twenties, thirties? How can you be punk and be old, you know, because I mean, isn't punk about just fuck you to your parents and to the school and to authority and then all of a sudden you become a parent and you become kind of some authority figure to someone and how can that how can right. you do that you know but um it just seems like bands don't i don't know bands don't like stay together as, as, as long as they used to and it's not like the same thing where i mean there's three million bands on myspace so i mean how do you kind of like you know and then all of a sudden you get as you be you know my band especially like everyone kind of becomes they, they, they like different kinds of music and they want different things and it's hard to kind of keep people together and focused mm -hmm. you know and I, I never believe democracy can work in in a rock band ever because I, I just don't believe that 
benevolent dictatorships? I so I get. I mean, I guess to certain. There's a visionary in the band that's right. sort of like the maybe the songwriter, um, which inevitably, I mean, broke up the, the Beatles. I mean, of course, right. you know, because they had two songwriters. But I mean, there's usually a visionary that kind of just says, you know, "This is," and and people that are in the band generally say, you know, I agree with this philosophy, and they kind of follow along because generally, if if you have a band of if you if you have a d- democratic band. Um, one guy just wants to, you know, like for the analogy of the shoes, one guy wants to wear the um, the, plat- the, the the gold-plated platforms, the other guy wants to wear the beetle boots, and and the other guy wants to go, you know, maybe flip-flops, and it's like, so they don't agree, they, they all just like settle on the Chuck Taylors. They have to like, th- then there's just the watered-down thing. So no one takes a stand. Like there's a, like Story of the Year is a classic example of a band I work with. There's a Christian guy. Mm-hmm. And then there's a very anti-religious guy in the band. And they were both equally scared to say, I want to sing about Jesus and I want to sing about how much I, I disagree with religious beliefs. You know, no one would take a stand because they were scared to hurt each other. So they all just, it would just ended up being kind of a watered down, middle of the, like mediocre kind of, kind of thing. And I don't know, I've, I've just never seen it. I've never really seen it work where a band... Like really makes it when it's when it's a, a, an even vote between everyone because then it, it just gets watered down. Do you think that Do you think that there's a, a, a you know that's like some of the some of the guys that that I see out in the festivals and stuff like that that are coming from some of the old school bands. I mean, I'm 42, so and I've kind of struggled with kind of go. Well, do I let keep the gray hair? Do I better start dyeing it? And I better start looking like Tommy Lee? Or what the hell do I need to do? And then it's like you know, so it's kind of you get into this struggle with like, how do you kind of fit within a crowd that are pretty much 19 years old now? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I had <laughs> I had a, a mohawk going for a little while when I was like probably like 33 ish. And looking back, I, I I still I cringe a little bit. I'm like, I was deaf. <laughs> that was definitely not okay, you know. And I dy- I mean, my hair is pretty gray here on the sides, you mm-hmm. know. And I dyed it like a month ago, and it's like, I mean, I. I I, I guess I consider myself a, a good friend of Brett Gurowitz, who also mm-hmm. has the you know right, the gray right. factor. I'm 41, and uh, you know it's one of those things where I feel like I don't know. I mean, uh, to me as as a kid, I mean the Police influenced me probably more than any other sure. band, you know. Yeah, and yeah. as much as like, I mean, I love Adolescence First Record, and I mean, I, I, I it was tough for me in high school because, um, I mean, the first thing that I really grabbed onto was punk rock, but I had this pop sensibility. I mean, I, I mean, I love Duran Duran, and I actually loved Wham, which I'm, I can't believe <laughs> I'm go. actually you know, admitting. there's a tour somebody's gonna make a lot of money, yeah. You no, know, if they ever will, do it, if they ever do it, there yeah. will be, but it's but, but if the, if, in 1982, like, I couldn't admit to like loving the circle jerk. And you know, black flag, you know, pre long haired Rollins. You know, I, I could I could admit to like to any of those people that I, when I was like seeing Social Distortion in 1981, and my high school band was opening for Seven Seconds. I could never say, hey, I kind of like. George Michael's music. I mean, I, I mean, it's like you couldn't admit that. But now it's like, I guess that's the great thing about how music is kind of. I mean, there's always going to be purists, and there's always going to be the the musical elitists that you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that will like you know a, a, against me is sold out or whatever. Though those kind of people, but you know, the bands that I work with, and it seems like bands in general that want to succeed are open to kind of like. I mean, maybe Justin Timberlake was the guy that op- that said, "Okay, it's okay to like me because you know I'm cool now. I, I don't have the the whatever." 
the fro and right, all that right. stuff, you know? I don't know what it is, but as far as like, you know, getting older gracefully, and, and I just mentioned the police because I saw them play twice on this play twice on this tour they're doing. Oh, and, that's awesome. And that, I mean, that dude, to me, um, I mean, I'm sure he's got enough haters, but to me, I mean, I, I look, I mean, he really takes care of himself. You know, he's balding and he's got the gray beard going, but he's still like, he like right. looks like, holy shit, that is one sexy motherfucker. And mm-hmm. I would make out with that dude had it had not be for my wife and my kid. That guy is a guy I would definitely be with, you know? And, and so, and I think Mike Ness is another dude that, um, you know, I mean, he certainly has the, you know, the, the prison bound and the history of like, mm-hmm. you know, the drugs and, you know, cleaning up and, but, but yet he's still, I think, you know, he's got that Frank Sinatra thing going on that like, he'll always look cool no matter how mm-hmm. old he is, you know? And, I mean, he's definitely got the Americana, you know, old 50s cars and the tattoos and the slick back hair thing. But it's, it, it works, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like he's not – he doesn't have the mo- <laughs> the mohawk or the – you know, I can't – like I don't wear shorts on stage anymore. And I don't think I can get away with like a wife beater that I, I may have been able to get a- away with 15 years ago. I just feel like it's just not who I am. I have a kid, another one going to be born in two weeks. It's like I'm – Oh, that's I'm a, great. Yeah, I'm a dad and, and, I'm, and I'm 41 and, and I have this other sort of career thing going on. And, and it's not that – I you know, I – I hate my tattoos by any stretch, but there's definitely that part of me that's creeping in that's like, look, at some point, I'm going to want to get my kids into certain, maybe certain events or certain schools that someone may look at me and say, dude, what, where does, where's this guy been? And judge me, right. you know? And, and that sort of thinking is creeping in where it's before. It's just like, who gives a fuck? I'm a, I'm a musician and I want to look how I want to look. And I just, I want There's no, there's no tomorrow. It's only right now. And now at the older I get, the more it's like. So the, ne- the, the neck tattoos aren't coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not coming, right? Um, you know the. Uh, I think one of the great things is it is it official year that you guys started ninety four. Ninety four. It is ninety four. Yes. Okay. So how does a band, you know, especially you got you know you got Pennywise, you got MXPX, you got Bad Religion, uh, you know even bands like No Effects, these mid to late nineties bands. They're all getting like 10, 12, 14 years, sixteen years, uh, and. It's like, how does a, how do you, what's the secret to keep a band together that long? Is it just like, how do you grow up together and not end up in that Metallica therapy DVD? I've, I mean, I'm, or is that just inevitable? No, I, I mean, I'm fr- I'm friends with at least one guy of all the bands that you mentioned. So mm-hmm. I've, I mean, I've, I've definitely talked with them about how they sort of you know deal with the psychology of being in a band and being married to three other dudes that you know obviously you become different and. I mean, every band, ha- every band has issues. Every mm-hmm. band. I don't sure. care who it is. And 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 the and I guess me working with other bands and younger bands helped me realize that um, you know I don't need to break up my band or replace members because it's like every band's got issues, you know. Um, but it's man, it's it's hard. And, and the only way I think Goldfinger's done it is because I had this other career. We were able to take off, you know, a year, two years, and I made records, and we kind of split up, and everyone did their own thing and got in side projects mm-hmm. and kind of had their own lives. And then we come back and tour, and it was like a reunion. It wasn't like, like I mean, just Anthony, you know, Anthony told me he he actually lives with all the guys in Circus Survive. Like they they get off the road and then they go live in the same house together with their girlfriends and wives and whatever. And I'm like, how the hell would you? I I, I couldn't I couldn't do that. You know, communal. Yeah, it's very communal. It's awesome. I mean, it's awesome to know that that exists. But for me, it's like you know, um, there's no way. You know, I mean, and I love the guys in my band. I mean, I really do. But you know, our our drummer's this big, you know, hockey freak, and all. I mean, all he wants to talk about are sports. And I've I've never watched any sports game ever. <laughs> on, I mean, nothing. Like the other day, I was at the airport and I was watching this baseball game, and and I was just thinking that that ball is just so, going so fast. And it was like <laughs> like like a three year old would probably think that. You know what I mean? But I'm thinking like I have no experience with that. So it's like. 
you know, I mean, generally when I'm home, I hang out with kind of like-minded people and, and, and you know, and I have my friends. And it's mm-hmm. like on the road, it's like we get together and it's just like, you know. But it's not like, you know, Goldfinger's been this this huge um, driving force that, um, you know, has really like, you know, to redefine the music. I just think that we put on a really entertaining live show and I think that's why there's still, you know, one or 2,000 kids showing up to these shows. So then what do you think the mentality is for, uh, you, you see a Punk's Not Dead, a DVD? S- I not American movie? hardcore. Punk's not dead. Punk's the dead. Susan Diner's movie. No, I didn't. Um, but one of the things I was kind of surprised—I shouldn't have been surprised—but one of the surprises was some of the old old school bands from LA that are pretty much broken up, or maybe they're st- still kind of doing the smaller thing now. Um, I, the number of guys in that in in those bands that are blatantly just bitter. Yes, they're, they're mad. Yes. They're mad. I mean, I saw American Hardcore, I definitely saw that in that yeah, movie yeah. as well, which is probably a different story. So how do you music, end up but... not getting to that point? Do you think it's just a, a viewpoint, or is it just, it's bound to happen when you, some people are just like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the automobile came around, and the people that used to like the horses were like, you know, these kids today in these cars, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, I struggle with that with the guys in my band. I mean, the guys in my band are definitely those kind of guys that are older, and like the kind of music they grew up on is the right kind of music. And and, and this emo crap is just, you know, how can it be popular? That that whole kind of mentality. And I mean, I I don't get it because it's just like my parents telling me that you know what this music is noise. You know, it's the same mentality, and I don't mm-hmm. see how they can't see it. That it's the same thing. You know. Um, but I, I mean, I, I ultimately, I think it's about the songs for me, and I think I've always had sort of a sense of of bands that kind of write um, write songs that like just stick, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's the hook or the lyric or whatever it is that grabs me, um, and that's why I think Bad Religion are you know still an important band. I mean, mm-hmm. on, they're they're still on K Rock every hour, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whatever that is, thirty years later, because they write great songs, and I think. That band especially has members in it that are just, they're grateful to be able to play a guitar in front of an audience. And they're not like thinking about like, you know, why aren't we as, you know, whatever, as, you know, as big as Blink or whatever mm-hmm. it is that, that some of these bands are thinking, where's mine? And I remember reading a bunch of stuff like, like Sonic Youth and all these bands that were kind of bashing Green Day when they first came out. Like these guys are just like, you know, they just ripped off the replacements in the Buzzcocks and they put mm-hmm. it together and they just ripped, you know, and it's just like, dude, that's what every music is. No matter how you, I mean, you could always like boil it down and figure out where the formula came from and who their influences were and they made it their own and it kind of became, became a different niche. But, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it's, 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 Jealousy, I guess, is the simple answer, right? That they're that they don't they feel like they deserved it because they were the on the forefront and like obviously back in the eighties there wasn't like you know punk rock bands on tour buses. I mean maybe the Sex Pistols toured on tour bus, but that was more of like a right. you know like a um, Sally Jesse Raphael show probably back in the day like with the you know the Cowboys throwing the beer bottles. That's that's what people went to go see. They didn't go right. see it in America at least to, to pogo and sing along. They saw right. it to like, see the see the show. And so most of the bands that kind of you know paved the road for like the a lot of these mid 90s bands like Pennywise and No Effects you know those bands didn't like the descendants were certainly never on the radio but they wrote right. songs now that probably could be on the radio sure do you think a lot of bands uh you know pop music tends to be um demonized it was probably very demonized after the boy band craze and everything after the you know 2001 or so and do you think a lot of bands uh, are afraid to embrace that kind of the hook in the song, the thing that kind of catches it, the thing that makes it the hit, the thing that gets it in people's memories to they sing cer- along. They certainly were, and when we in '94, for sure, they were. You know what yeah. I mean? There was definitely a sense of like, you know, the the indie label and you know, Fat Mike's record company and Epitaph and this whole kind of 
you know, thing going on where it was like, you know, it was very, you know, kind of against the mainstream and they were still trying to keep it like, you know, on the underground and like have a certain amount of people. And then once it, it broke, it was like, then the jocks liked you and then you weren't cool anymore. That right. sort of mentality. There was definitely, I mean, I remember the first Warp Tour we played because you know, we got on the radio quick. We had toured, you know, with a bunch of ska bands like Buck Nine and the Skeletones and Real mm. Big Fish. And we did all those little tours for about nine months or a year, but then here in your bedroom broke on the radio. And then it was like, we were on warp tour with like, there was like 40 spins a week on K rock. So mm-hmm. everyone had heard the song and like a lot of bands that kind of had been struggling that maybe were a little bit like, well, who are these guys? You know, where do right. they come from and what's their and deal? How dare they? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So th- there was definitely that sort of thing. But, but like I said earlier, the bands I work with now, I just, I just don't think it's the same as it was, mm-hmm. you know, um, whenever that like 50, 14 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. it's different now. I mean, bands, know that music's free and that it's like you know that most of the bands at least that that come into kind of my world are looking to do anything they can to be separated from the three million others on MySpace. You know, mm-hmm. the, be- the best song, the best stage show, the best kind of look, the whole package. I just don't think bands are as scared. And plus, like, the digital marketing and people downloading music, there aren't credits for them to look at to say, oh, this song was co-written by by Feldman. So that then it's not him. It's like the, the kids don't look that deep that into it. That argument's gone. It's, it's like the major label argument, you know, the band signed to a major label. Now, that's kind of diffused now. Yeah, because music's mm-hmm. free and kids will, I mean, literally kids will dance like they'll set up their computer at night probably download 200 songs the next day listen to 10 seconds delete 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 they'll keep like whatever like sticks they keep and then there'll maybe 10 out of the 200 they download it will stay on their ipod right and then that's pretty much it you know what i mean so it's not there's not all this kind of culture that goes along with music like it was when we were growing up with mm-hmm. the vinyl and opening up and reading the you know, reading the inside of sandinista where it actually had the, the <laughs> scribbling in, in inside of you know yeah. there's, there's none of that yeah. anymore yeah, you know? yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's, no, there's nothing and I'm, i mean obviously that's not true there's definitely still hardcore music fans that will do it but the majority of of people that listen to music now don't listen to it the same way so then for Goldfinger you know with the records that you put out over the years and the last uh, studio record was 2002 2002 I mean like the real one okay disconnection notice was I think 02 02 so how do you and 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 it's funny because I was talking to the guys in MXPX about this it's like how do you not get that how have you not gotten that pressure to conform to the sound of now? You know, the pressure of now. Like, hey, you know, Good Charlotte's doing something. You got to, you know, they're, they're successful. You got to, you kind of got to go yeah. that route now. I actually just Even had, from a technical standpoint. Uh, I just had the same conversation with Benji from Good Charlotte last week, you know, okay. because, I mean, my, my, my opinion is, I mean, that Good Charlotte are a, a pop punk band mm-hmm. that like you know have 12 13 year old girls that love them and that's kind of what their market was and on this record i think they saw you know boys like girls and this sort of like metro station kind of revolution happening with the with the i mean panic of the disco to a certain extent on their first album with the kind of disco gang of four ish you know with mm-hmm. way, way poppier sort of you know disco beats and 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 I I just I just said I think they lost they they really to me lost a lot of their core audience because they were trying to do what you were just saying which is move with the, the whatever the latest trend is and the latest kind of you know fashionable sound and and to me I just don't think it um it really worked for them this last record you know I think sold like. 200,000 coming off a million from the one before. I mean, obviously, you know, things have changed in, the, in, in, you know, in record sales. But I just think that that's some bands can kind of get away with it. But, um, I mean, it's, it's the age-old conversation of if, if it wasn't for Creep, Radiohead, right. w- you know what I mean? It's like they, yeah. they didn't start with the bands. They, they started with Creep, you know what I mean? And that's what kind of put them in. And um, I don't know, like Coldplay to a certain extent is the same thing where, like, their first three records were very 
I mean, the, the way they arranged and the way they sounded was very, you know, simple, but it worked perfectly for them. Right. And, and we'll see what happens with this new record, which is definitely a departure a bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the single on the record is still his voice, which is oh, the, sure. defining, yeah. the defining thing with that band, you know, but... I don't know. I mean, I think some bands can. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, I just think Aerosmith right now. I mean, they 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 would go with the latest songwriter and write with them and, and the, the the newest producer, and it worked for them for what like twenty years. You know, when they right. had their run. You know, but I I don't know. I mean, I just think with with this kind of music, like I mean, you know, obviously Green Day is the classic example of a band that kind of stayed. They they, they sound the same, and they're still important on the radio and I guess to a certain extent I mean emo really is kind of a you know a fancy pop punk you know with a little little more you know broken down eighth notey sort of thing and a different haircuts you know and maybe a little slower but it's still like you know the bands that really have broken out have mm -hmm. great choruses you know and great lyrics that people like sink their teeth into it's kind of like what you know Madonna where she kind of continually brings in the new kind of yep. hot artist to do yep. something with to kind of take it to the next level and I stand correct it was actually 2005 prior okay. to the new one but 2005 with this connection notice you had on Maverick. I was thinking of the Jive Mojo yeah, thing yeah. from 2002. So my apologies on that. I no screwed worries. that one up. I, I, I I'm sure you've had words from journalists. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so uh, is... Um, you, you, and actually, let's talk about that. With the new record, you're you're on side one. If this is full indie because prior to that was Maverick, uh, Mojo, Jive. It was Mojo. And then prior to that was Universal. So... How does it feel to kind of, especially in this day and age, to be on an indie? Does it make you feel more free? Or does it scare the hell out of you? Or is it kind of a little both? You know, I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm the, I'm the one guy in the band that tours for fun and sort of, this is my vacation. I mean, this is really my vacation. That's awesome. you know, Because, I mean, you know, <laughs> 17 hours in the day and, you know, every day in the studio when I'm making records, it's like, it, it, that's my job essentially. So, so the other guys in the band are doing, you know, they're doing this to kind of pay their bills at home. And it's, so it's a whole different mentality for me and the rest and, and the rest of the dudes. But so as far as being like, you know, free. I mean, I sold shoes on the promenade and, you know, for like, you know, I was in a, I was in a metal band when I first moved to LA and we got signed and we, you know, toured with Ugly Kid Joe and, and LA Guns and these metal bands. And it was, it was super rad. Like we like owned Hollywood for like, we came up in this kind of during the Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, okay. Fishbone Revolution, you know, yeah. kind of how we came up and, and man, it was, it was just awesome. And, you know, we, uh, you know, I was in LA for three years. We got a record deal, toured the world, got dropped like a year later, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So by like, Nine, I guess 91, 92, I was dropped and back to selling shoes, you know, to the same same people that were, like, promoting shows. Like, I remember seeing, like, Ricky Rackman, like, came in, and he's like, hey, what's going on with the band? I'm like, you're like a, a nine and a half. And I, I could literally pick his shoe size, you know what I mean? Like, I was back there. So kind of by the, by the time that, like, I had worked at this, you know, after, like, five years being back after doing this, I'm like, all I want to do is play music. And, and like, I had done this demos, and I'd send them. I, I forget the, the A&R guys that I kind of knew from back in the, in the day, but I kind of sent out a bunch of demos of Goldfinger that I was doing, and I didn't really get much response. But this one guy came in one day, and, you know, he remembered me from the old band, and I slipped a demo tape in his, in his shoe box. And, I mean, all I wanted to do was play music again. And it was this Mojo Records thing, which was owned by Hans Zimmer, and and he was like, dude, I love the songs, I want to do something, you know, and mm -hmm. and I'm like, whatever, whatever it takes, just get me out of like it was like literally old ladies coming and showing me the boils and corns on their on their feet <laughs> like every day, dude. It was like I whatever I could do to get out of this, so I wasn't like worried about the. I mean, I gave my demo tape to, to Fat Mike because of course I wanted, sure, you know, and and all those people were like, do this, you know, Fat Mike's dude, the songs aren't very good, he didn't like it, he passed, mm -hmm. you know, and so Mojo was like our only, it was like our only hope, and so. 
we went there and um, you know made our first record with um, you know Hans Zimmer was like like in the studio every day just walking like, like he, I forget I don't know if he's scoring The Lion King or one of those kind of movies yeah, at the yeah, time yeah. but yeah. it was really like interesting because it was like a very sterile environment but I'm like whatever it takes to get me out of, out of selling shoes and and so from then it was like they they you know they did the universal thing and and it became kind of a, a machine I guess when they went to Jive and the whole thing and everything yeah. kind of and I, I was honestly I was at the time I, I just wanted to play shows I didn't really pay much attention i didn't really care yeah. because i was never told this is the kind of music you have to write or you know we we need a hit because i always want to write you know hits whatever you call. I always want to write a chorus that's going to stick out and be able to be played on the radio that's that's what i always wanted you know mm-hmm. with this band so i always kind of delivered a record that i think the label always felt like this is kind of what we think goldfinger is and it was always good and i used to live with bill armstrong who's co-owner you know with joe sib at side one and mm-hmm. you know i live with him and, and kelly our bass player I guess that was back in in ninety, but back when Love Hogs got dropped, and so I, I've known those guys forever. And it just for me, I I can't afford to do the whole kind of like major label, like you know, three hundred eighty five shows, and like we did in ninety six. Yeah, I but can't. Guinness Book of World Records on yes, that. Yes, I I can't afford to do that anymore because I need to make records, you know. Um, and so I wanted to be with a label that like you know would let me do whatever I want and 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 we would still tour but not have to tour like the crazy all the radio festivals and right. all that stuff that we've done in the past and so it it just made complete sense you know I don't need I don't need money to, to you know, I have a studio on my own. I could, I did everything on my own. It just made sense, you know, and, and they, they, they've always loved our band and, and both those guys are just really good friends with, with our band. So it just mm-hmm. made, it just made sense. Well, we, we take two music breaks and, uh, and so what I'm going to throw at you, uh, I'm going to give you a scenario and you pick two bands and two songs, any band, any song. Okay. And why don't we, um, why don't we hear two bands and two songs that, uh, one song, each band, uh, from back uh, in the day when you were breaking into music that were kind of like your anthems? Um, all right, yeah. Uh, Behind the Sun by the Red Hot Chili Peppers certainly was, one, was uh, you know, I mean, we're, if we're talking back in the day and, and Ma and Pa, Fishbone, I mean, I just, I guess, just because we were just talking about my right, history, that, right when I moved to L.A., I mean, that was like, that was the sound mm-hmm. of Los Angeles, was, was that was it, you know, Ma and Pa, Fishbone and Behind the Sun Chili Peppers, for sure.
biggest mistakes that you see uh and you've worked with a lot of young bands um that they make working with a producer the biggest mistake bands make is that they think things are going to get handed to them that they're not going to have to actually do the work they're not going to actually have to you know be in a band and, and learn how to play that they can just come in and kind of play one bar stop woo, wipe off that sweat from that three seconds of playing and then do another bar you know what i mean that that's what they think it's going to be that's what they think it's going to be like and and i have made records where there's been like you know a lot of those kind of punch-in situations and retuning because i mean I, I mean kids obviously grow up different i mean i i i kind of i mean i study the beatles you know and those guys would spend an afternoon driving across town to learn a new chord you know and and nowadays it's like people like essentially learn on guitar hero first and there and you know there's so much stuff to do you know with the the sidekick in the in the myspace and playing halo 30 or whatever you know and like you know what i mean they're, they're and they're doing all of it and then, and then they say i'm going to play a guitar and they learn how to do a you know a bar chord and then that's then that's pretty much it and, and obviously like playing a bar chord is is fine i mean a lot of bands you know what do they say you know you know, three chords and the truth. I mean, that that goes a long way. But 
you know, for me, for me to be able to like, you know, the, when they think that I'm actually, you know, going to be like in the band and touring, which is a lot of these records that they think I'm going to make is my role. They have to be more motivated than I am. Right. And I've made a, a few records that I've been more motivated than the band for sure. And really? That, and wow. that never, it never pans out in the end. I mean, those kind of bands don't, you know, they don't really take off. I mean, it has to be about touring these days more than ever. It has sure. to be about a great live show and connecting with an audience. You know, um, and bands, I don't think really think about like, you know, the, the dried sweat from the night be from like four nights before because they, they can't shower because there's no money for hotels and <laughs> right. and they're trying to beg like whatever three fans are in the audience to go. I mean, that, that sort of, you know, work ethic. I just don't think they I think they think of it as like, you know, some kind of like, you know, movie, you know, but until they really read Get in the Van, you know, I just don't think they really expect it till they get out there. And I hear a lot of whining kids. So I mean the biggest mistake I think people make is 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 just like, you know, not plan, you know, not planning on actually doing the work themselves and having they think that some labels just going to hand them success. Mm -hmm. And it never works that way. And no matter what I think of a band, when I find a band, you know, that I bring to Warner Brothers and, and mm -hmm. say, we have to sign this this group, you know, um, it's like, uh, um, I mean, no, no matter what I do, it's going to be defined by the audience and the kids have to make the decision if it's going to be cool and if it's going right. to be real. It's I can only do so much. And, and, and then that's, I mean, I've been through so many record deals on my own with my own bands that I've been in. I understand it, but I, I still, I guess, I, I still kind of relate to kids just thinking, oh, it's the marketing's fault or, you know. And that's another bummer, especially in L.A. when I meet L.A. bands that they, that know too much about the business. Then it, <laughs> then, it be, then it's like, I don't, I just don't care. I mean, I, I, I want my bands to be successful, so I care to that extent, but I don't want that to be my job. I want my job to be right. about arranging songs, about like co-writing if they want to write with me, and about getting the best sounds I can get and making a cohesive record that start to finish. You go, this is the same band, and it speaks, it, you know, really speaks to me. And that's my job, is mm -hmm. the creative artistic side. It's not my job to care about that. When bands from L.A. especially come in and they want to talk about marketing, and even to a certain extent they want to talk about like the snare sound, the mic placement, and the EQ, and it's like... I mean, I mean, I like all that stuff and I geeked out for, and I'll still geek out like I did, you know, a few <laughs> minutes ago, but it's like, I just want, I really only want to care about the song and, you know, and that, that's the only thing that matters in the end because it's about music. It's not about all the other stuff. And, and, and I guess the more we kind of go into it, I mean, with, you know, bands doing it themselves, I guess it matters to them, but my job is not to care about, you know, the marketing or the photo shoots or any of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, Jason, my editor has a, had a, had a sign up on his desk for years. I think it's still there and it says music, not marketing. And then, but then if you read some of the online uh, advice sites and Bob Lefsets and stuff, there's like, hello, it's the music business. It's you got to know the business in order to make money in this business. So there's like these two competing worlds that are one's more purist, one's more punk rock, the other one's more, you know, likes to think of itself as more reality based. So there yeah. is that fight now that seems to be kind of meshing into a muddy uh, vat of. Yeah, well, people, I mean, Crap. obviously, like, you know, Brett Gerowitz and Fat Mike have certainly, you know, made awesome careers out sure. of paying attention to the music business. But, I mean, to be honest, I haven't. I've, I mean, someone bought me everything you know about the music business. Sure. I, I mean, I looked at it. I have, I've never opened it. I just... I mean, I don't know. I feel like I, I've, 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 I'm fine, kind of doing what I'm doing, and it's like, I, I mean, and I go to some of these marketing meetings sometimes. I mean, some, uh, I mean, I just, I, I just, you know, I say this is what I like, and this is why I like it, and this is why I think this band will, you know, be successful, and this is why I think we should. I mean, I, I, I kind of do that approach, but as far as the other stuff goes, I, mean, I don't really care. I mean, I guess I want the whole package. When I look for a band, especially when a band's sending me demos or you know MySpace um, messages, it's like. 
I mean, there has to be a certain amount. I mean, the band has to care about you know themselves. And I, I mean, I it's it's hard for me to kind of look at a, a band that like you know are, are wearing you know sw- you know sweatpants and no shirt and they're all like you know four hundred pounds you know eating Twinkies. It's hard for me to say you know, they don't they don't really care about themselves that much. So how much right. are they going to really care about their their career or the songs or I mean you know what I mean? So that's good. That's good. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I do want the, the you know the whole package. I want them to have some sense of like some sense of style. There's a band Beat Union that I just you sure. know, I finished with, and they I mean they really knew what they wanted. They they came to me. They're like you know we we like you know Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello, the Jam, and the Clash, and that's what we want to make that kind of record. And this is how we look. And they got the drain drainpipe pants and the you know the cut off you know yeah. English beat shirts and and their haircuts and the hats. And it's like they they were there. And part of when they came to me. You know, part of my um, attraction was that they they really you know had a defined thing going on, a defined sound, a defined image. They knew who they were. Exactly. Right. And there's right. a lot of bands that, that really don't, and it takes some time. I mean, I mean, I think you know the used to ex- a certain extent. You know, they were always just kids, and I remember like when they first came backstage to this Goldfinger show in Salt Lake City. It was Brandon and Quinn, and you know Brandon had this you know f- homemade home cut you know purple mohawk that was you know kind of folded <laughs> over and you know Quinn had just bleached his hair himself and they were you know wearing their long chain wallets and then they they're they're definitely like just kids that you would see right. like you you know and and they sort of just became I guess that like they never really said this is what we're going to look like you know I think they tighten up their image a little bit but they've always been I mean Bird especially has always been like look uh, there's no separation between me and the audience except for you know his amazing voice which i mean i mean to me it's like i mean that's what really made the use was his kind of like his passion in his voice you know sometimes the road makes the musician in the long run it does happen you know but it's hard nowadays like you know bono bono says that you know if his first record came out today they'd be dropped after the first record because it wasn't a success straight up there with like you know if they would have made the godfather today if they tried to make the godfather today it never would be made so you know a lot of you see a lot of movie directors say the same things um so with that second part of that question is, and, and you've kind of answered it already, but I didn't know if there was something more technically, um, if there was something more technical that, that could possibly be spoken, which is the biggest mistake that the young bands make when they approach the, st- uh, how they approach the studio experience. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm a, uh, I mean, my, my, my role has been a lot of the times to make the record that the band's going to be able to play a year later, you know, because in the end, I'm not going to make some some just sloppy record with no click that just let's play one take live every. I'm, I'm not that guy, you know. I mm. mean, I, I want my records. I want there to be stuff going on like ear candy stuff that people the 30th time they're listening, they go, "Oh my god, I didn't hear that little voice up here in the in the bridge." I want I want that stuff to be going on in every record I make. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times bands, you know, come to me, and so you know, um, when they're they're not they're just not ready to make a record. So I have to, um, I have to help out, and 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 some. I mean, ninety percent of the time it works out. Ninety percent of the time that we, by the time we're finished with the record, the band goes, "Oh my god, this sounds so good." They actually go home and rehearse under headphones for two, three, four weeks. You know, e- you know, every second of every day, learning how to play what we put together. That happens a lot. You know, so I mean, as far as the technical stuff goes, like the, the mistakes that you know when they, when they come in is they they don't think they need to play as well as, you know, some of the shred like Dragon Force style or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they come in unprepared, and then um, by the time we're done, they go, how, you know, sometimes they think, how am I going to do this? But they, but like I said, 90% of the time, they get motivated enough to do it. But the technical end of stuff is really frustrating because I mean, I'm not like, 
I, I'm no Joe Satriani myself on, on guitar, but I got a, you know, I got a good right hand and I can do like a great rhythm and I'm really good with a click and I've always been that way, you know what I mean? And, and bands these days, they just don't sit, sit and play like eighth notes along with like, you know, the Ramones or any of these, you know, great eighth note kind of old oh, school yeah, yeah. bands. Yeah. They just don't do that anymore. It's kind of like they just listen to music and then they, they can kind of do like some kind of crazy sweep, like with this kind of new metal core thing that's been going on for a few years. You know, they, they learn how to do one little thing. And so they come in, they can't play it in one take. And that's the, the, the frustrating thing for me is, you know, knowing that, that they're going to go out there and knowing the first few months of touring, the kids are going to say, is this the same band? I mean, that's happened with a few bands that, that I've watched, you know, after we make the record, you know. But eventually, like I said, 90% of the time, six months, a year into it, when the radio comes and when the other stuff comes, they're playing the record as it was, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, we were talking about, uh, Motion City was in here the, the other uh, week, and we were talking about um, William Friedkin, who did The Exorcist, and how he would, uh, at one point, he started slapping the actors in order to get them to react the right way. And so there was a great interview I read with you where you were talking about, how, you know, like one of the biggest struggles you've got in the studio isn't with the technical end. It's actually trying to get that relationship locked in with the artist, uh, and especially the variety of different artists and if you've got a bassist mad at the guitar player and somebody's yeah. used you know whatever and the lead singer's pissed everybody off because now he's got an ego or she uh so what is your kind of methodology to this this kind of approach uh to this microphone psychology so to speak well, we always talk about the history of a song. You know, if the song is already written, I always want to get into the. Um, this it's always it's the singer because in the end, that's what every you know most music fans are going to be listening to the voice and singing along and relating to the lyrics. And so that's, I mean, hands down, it's the most important thing. And I think lyrics. I mean, with the success of Lil Wayne, I mean, lyrics mm. are obviously, um, I think, the most important thing, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, everything's important, but the lyrics are the most important thing to be able to have kids to really relate to. And um, uh, so for me, with a singer, it's kind of like, you know, we really just, you know, sit down and I'm a big caffeine dude in the studio. Like, it's like I got a, this <laughs> rad espresso machine and we just like, we just get jacked up. They come in at, you know, 11 or 12 and we just like, you know, when we're, when we're about to kind of either kind of finish writing the lyrics or, you know, do a vocal take, we'll sit and we'll talk about it. Like what, you know, what was going on? You know, I mean, what, what's this, what was this relationship like? And, and, you know, maybe like, I mean, I love that movie once, you know, when he's writing mm. that song, he's actually looking at the, the old video footage of him. And I, 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 mean, I love that movie and how it just, he came going back and, you know, kind of getting in touch with those feelings he had about the woman that he was writing that song about. And I, I try and do the same thing with singers, but, but really like, um, there's a lot of the guys I work with are, you know, 18 to 20. 20 and they're, they're, you know, they're really young and it's not that they, they don't have like a, a ton of life experience right. and there's always exceptions to that rule. Like I think Alex from Atreyu, you know, definitely had, and Brandon as well, mm. they had life experience. Bert had a ton of life experience, you know, right. with his girlfriend killing herself during the last record and this dog getting, you know, run, all the stuff that's kind of happened for that guy. So, I mean, but a lot of these guys that don't have a lot of life experience, you know, um, I, I'll share, you know, just stuff about my past and, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that's happened with my family or my dad and the kind of drama that's gone on in my life and, you know, the struggle that I've had to become who I am and, and where I am in my life, you know, mm -hmm. because it hasn't been like, here you go, some trust fund kid, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I, I, I worked until I could, you know, do this, you know, I mean, I paid my own bills, you know, like I said, selling shoes and, and to talk about that kind of stuff with um and, and to kind of maybe inspire them sure. to, to think about stuff to, to write about. But as far as like when they're actually in there, you know, I mean, it's, it's usually, um, it's usually just me and the singer. And it's usually, I mean, I like to kind of have the kind of, you know, hippie, candle -y sort of thing going on to really like, I mean, to me, I mean, 
I, I've tried to meditate and I, I, I've had a little bit of success, but I mean, the simplest form of meditation is just to watch a candle in a flame and just like, just try and like, that's all you're thinking about. It's just, the, you know, how the candle's moving and stuff. And, and I think having candles is a great kind of tool to kind of forget about, you know, who's texting you on your sidekick and, you know, what girl is going to be my spacing you later to hook up and all that kind of stuff to leave that alone, to be in the moment, right? Because that's what music is. It's about being right here, right now and not like all over the place, which is kind of a bummer because I think most people listen to music music now you know when all they're all over the place yeah they're they're <laughs> yeah they're on their iphone listening to music and they're texting and they're uh, on myspace and they're playing you know that so they are all over the place but at least when i'm trying to capture that moment that's the most important thing is to capture that moment with a singer that's that, that's actually you know there and that's why i like to kind of get them in that mind space and i've, I've heard like you know I, I know ross robinson likes to i mean i've thrown shit at bert you know i was when, gonna ask you about that that's the story kitchenware what's that is that true yeah yeah i mean I, we definitely um you know but we talked about it first you know i really feel like I, I want bands to trust me that i'm not just gonna you know wing out and like punch them in the back of the head because i would never i mean i've made a lot of records myself and i would be like i can't work with this guy if i'm gonna feel <laughs> physically threatened how am i gonna you know you know no way i couldn't do it but we talked about that and yeah i think it was greener with the scenery the breakdown of that on their first record and we we just talked about it. we said look um i think it was brandon's idea actually to um because when they did the demo of it they did the same thing i said dude I'm, I'm up for it we just grabbed all the all the kitchenware and we just put the microphone out in my living room and he just went out there and turned off all the lights it was like three in the morning and uh you know all we i mean it wasn't like he was trying to actually sing lyrics it was just like this kind of ambient like screamy part mm -hmm. and so it was kind of like randomly we'd throw shit at him and he would just you know scream when he'd get a hit you know and it was but it was really organic how that whole thing kind of happened because it kind of came from the band which i mean essentially you know my, my my job as a producer you know it really like i said it really isn't to be a member of the band you know i mean yeah. every, every band's different but it's really my job is to be able to get the band to reach their biggest you know their their best potential in the shortest amount of time you know um like escape the fates a record i just finished last week you know, and those, they just got a new singer. And so they're, you know, and they, they had no songs written. So we had to start from scratch. So that's oh. the situation that we were like, you know, thrown into. We had two months to write a record and record it and finish it and have it mastered in two months, you know. And so it was really, um, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm the guy to do it. But, you know, essentially, you know, my job is to help the band become the best band they can be, right? So a couple more questions. We'll do another music break. Um, uh, studio schools. Uh, LA recording studio, full sale. Yep. A lot of kids now are sitting, you know what? I now have that place where I can go. Kind of like, you know, when I was growing up, we had the Ohio School of Broadcast Technique. Yep. And that's where you went if you wanted to get into television or you wanted to get into radio. You went to this place. And usually a lot of people in the industry kind of laughed if you went there. Like, what the hell is this? But these places are full-line professional. They teach you everything you need to know. But thinking of uh, Rodney Dangerfield and back to school, what's, what do you think is the one thing that these schools can't teach you? That's um, like the extra homework that anybody going to these got to do. They can't give you passion. They can't, um, you know, uh. you know, they they can't teach you. I don't think anyone can really teach you how to, um, you know, write a song. And I guess essentially, like my engineer went to Full Sail, and you know, he can certainly. I mean, he knows how to, you know, patch a compressor, and he knows how to, like, you know, EQ a, a you know, floor tom. Um, and, and he's actually, you know, an okay, a good songwriter, but it's like, I just don't think those schools can teach you, um, you know, you know, how to be personable with people. And essentially in the studio, I mean, it really is my job is partly a psychologist and the engineer's job is the same thing. It's to deal with, with people that, and if you want to be in a band in the first place, you, you got to have some fucked up shit that happened. You got to, I mean, to want to like fucking be in a band, you got to be fucked up. Right. And so you're dealing with people that are essentially, 
everyone's going to be an ego mate. And a lot of the bands are so gnarly. Like the bass player is the, he wants to be the lead singer. The drummer writes the lyrics or whatever it is that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that like you're dealing with really strong personalities for the most part, or at least one or two when you're working with bands. And so I don't think that's what they, I don't think they really teach that a lot. Those schools is how to deal with these personalities without saying, dude, I having to get up and leave because these guys are like, fuck you, go fucking make me coffee, you little bitch, which is a lot of these guys, the way they talk to, you know, they think engineers are just like the, the slaves or some shit, you know? Right. And, um, and, and I think that's, you know, for me, I learned everything that I know how to do as far as the technical end of stuff, just by watching other people, you know, make records when I, when, when I was like, you know, making Goldfinger albums, you know, I'd watch the engineers and see how they'd EQ stuff. I'd see how they'd run Pro Tools and I'd, and I'd ask him and then I'd, I'd spend an hour a day on the computer or an hour a day just messing around with like I just sold up a snare and just mess around with the EQ and the compressor and see what things do. I'll just look and just do it, you know, and I think, you know, like I said, I mean, Matt Appleton's my main engineer and he went to Full Sail and I think he told me out of his class, there was one other person that was actually working in the music business besides him, really? you know, that, that graduated from his class, you know, wow. so two out of, I mean, I don't know how many people. So, I mean, I, I, so, I, I, sounds like that kind of that general edge, you know, the bachelor's of arts degree. Kind yeah, of <laughs> it's kind of like I think people like think this will be easy and this will be something that I can do. And, you know, um, I really like Pearl Jam, so I'm going to go to music school. I think that's the majority kind of people there probably of that mindset that aren't really paying attention and really studying and really going, I have to do this. Because in the end, you know, everyone wants the easier, softer way, right? Everyone wants to, um, you know, have that, you know, that easy job. And, and, and th because everyone thinks that that's what the music business is, that it's actually like so much harder than most other jobs because there's there's only really you know how i mean how many engineers are really making records even in la i mean how many are really doing right. it like less than 100 you know what i mean so it's you know it's tough and i'm you know i'm i'm not gonna every my dad you know as a kid told me you will never make it in the music business i mean i mean he straight up said it you know all you know all that, which is um, probably part of the reason why I am successful. Is, <laughs> fuck you! I'm right. gonna prove you wrong. Right? You know, um, so I will never be the guy to say, "Look, if you think a music school is what you want to do, and maybe just going to the school would be fun, even if you don't end up being an engineer or producer, you end up doing something. Maybe you could just be four, three, four years of like just super fun time and learning this cool thing that you think. I mean, I would never be one to say, "Don't do that." But my experience shows that most people that I've worked with, like professionals. They, they don't go that route. They, they just go in the studio and they take out the trash. There's a friend of mine, Tick, that works for Warner Brothers. You know, they called him, he used to work for the Beastie Boys and he just, you know, run up and down the stairs getting him coffee all day long and those guys would have those 20-hour work days because they're workaholics for sure. Yeah, and, right. and all we'd be doing is going up and down all day in New York at this studio that was the third floor up and they called him the Tick because he was so high energy just kind of, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that was what he did. He just did that. He like hung out and just became friends with them, took out the trash, did every all their little bullshit stuff and took notes and did the faxes and everything. And that's, to me, I mean, that, that if, if you really want to be like an engineer, that's what I would suggest is just, you know, camp outside a studio until they let you in and let you take out the trash. You know, I've tried to have, um, I don't know, I think I've gone through eight interns in the last year and Whoa. every one of them quit the first day. Every one of them, they'd work for Jeez. for three, four hours. Have a reality show. No, really, they they'd come in and I, I they they do. I'm so excited. I'm the biggest fan. I love all these records. Blah blah blah. And they get in there, and I'm like, I'm like, look, you know, this guy is a raw vegan. You're gonna need to go pick up food from this specific restaurant, and you know, we really need you know some more caffeine. We're starting to tire out, and they're just like, what? I just thought I'm, I was just going to sit on the couch and like learn. I thought you were just going to teach me, and you're just going to. And I'm like, no, dude. Take some MySpace pictures, right? Yeah, it's right. like. Eight in the last year. It's just crazy how, 
I mean, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. How, how <laughs> kind of lazy people have gotten, but whatever. <laughs> then, then, then we're going to sound bitter. Um, and if, just one more question on the studio thing. You, uh, you know, a lot of great records are made in the middle of the night. And, yes. Uh, but you made a good point in one of your interviews talking about when things go wrong and things break down and the, and the shit hits the fan. There's no place to go. There's no place open. You know, you're dealing with what you got. You're basically like a mash unit. You got to kind of deal with the stuff you got in there. What's like your your that story that you end up that war story you tell people of that middle of the night experience where you were basically it was survivor man um i mean typically kind of excuse me typically bands you know they you know they kind of hang out and, and for the most part bands are really understanding when it comes to, te to technical stuff um but I'm trying to, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I haven't had anything where it's like, because I'm pretty computer savvy and, and, and I've never had anything that's gone more than six hours without actually being able to re be recovered. I had, I mean, I guess the two stories that come to mind, it was a messed album, their third record, um, the hard drive had what's called a, a head crash where the actual, where the thing spins, there's like a, I guess the head of the um, hard drive actually penetrated into the um, into the data and it just, the, the entire drive was wiped. We hadn't backed up for, my engineer hadn't backed up for three days. Well, I'm going to blame him. I'm going to say we, I'm not going to blame him. It is, <laughs> I, I could have backed up as well, but we hadn't backed up for three days. So we actually lost, you know, three days worth. Of, I mean, and the, the worst part is it was vocal performances. We can oh. always recover drums. I mean, cause you can kind of put it back together and, and guitar you can replay, but vocals, when you're trying to get that performance, that earnest, honest kind of like mm -hmm. you get that, that one take you, and you can't recover it. And I sent it into this, um, uh, to this FBI reco data recovering place in San Francisco. I spent three grand. They couldn't recover it. You know, it was one of those situations. Oh, that was the worst I've ever had. But though the one thing that um, even worse to me was this one night when we were in the middle of uh, the used second album. We were up in San Simeon, which is Central Coast, and Bert just called me, and he had had pneumonia prior to that, so we hadn't been able to work for a week, uh, like a, no vocals for the week before that. We are doing all this uh, other overdub stuff, and we were up there on a songwriting trip in the middle of nowhere, and he called me at 2 in the morning and said, I really, I really want to sing the song, which eventually became uh, Sound Effects and Overdramatics, which was like the, the heaviest song on their second album. And he's like, I, I want to sing it now. It was a full moon. And I just took my laptop. I took an SM7 and I had my M-Box. And we just, you know, walked about, I don't know, probably a half a mile down the beach. It was just like literally see, like the full moon, it looked like, it looked like Mars. I mean, it was just mm. like this green blue landscape of these like crazy, like ragged, like bluffs. And, and you could hear the seals kind of swimming. Like it was like two, three in the morning. And my biggest regret is we did, I didn't call Jeffa and have him bring the video camera to record it. It was like probably the most magical thing I've ever done, you know, as far as just recording this moment. He did everything in two takes. It took about 20 minutes, did the whole song, all the harmonies, everything in like, you know, every Everything was just like one take, you know, we did lead, lead vocal twice, it was just me and Bert, and he was standing on top of this rock, screaming to the ocean, and it was probably like five, six foot waves, so it was like good enough where you could, he could actually hear the ocean in the background, mm. and that's my, that's probably my biggest regret of anything I've ever done, that I didn't have Jeffa come out and film it, you know, but I, I guess there's something special about just Bert and I having that, you know, in our memories of that mm -hmm. moment, you know, it's pretty cool, but I, I do wish we could have shared that with other people, it was so cool. So uh, next music break here. Um, stuff that's recently come out that you are that that you uh, you encourage people to go check out. You're backstage and you're like, you know what? Go pick up the new blah and listen to this one song. I tell you, it's it's one of my favorite songs on that record. 
You're talking about music that I probably haven't worked on. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I know, is that what you're talking about? Or, no, no, or stuff whatever? you have worked on. Oh, so, okay, cool. Because I was going to say, all right, all right, all right. it's been hard for me to listen. <laughs> I've been working so much lately. Um, there's a song called Leave Me Love by Josephine Collective that, you know, I really, I really put my heart and soul into that one. We had recorded the song and it was like one of those songs that after we got finished with the guys are like, this is going to be a B-side. We shouldn't even do it. And I said, don't lose faith. And they, they went home to sleep. But the next day I stayed up all night doing this like crazy kind of old, old school break beat. And then I had the keyboard player come in and do this kind of like, you know, um, beatboxing thing on top, which, you know, it was really kind of alien to the sort of music I, I generally kind of record, mm -hmm. you know. And it just, it just became this like, I don't know, just this this like folky kind of pop punk like hip hop thing in 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 in, in not like the hip hop sense, but it's just one of those songs that I really feel is super magical. <laughs> Now I don't know how long it's 
you know, kind of as a transitional thing, uh, you, I read in one of the interviews where you were talking about how when you, bands come into the studios and you do this with the matches and other things where you sit down and you start talking to them about, uh, you show them animal cruelty videos, mm -hmm. DVDs, and you show them what happens to them and then you, you talk to them and you find out and, and a lot of times you get band members to start coming over and start saying, you know what, the, you know, you're right, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go vegan, I'm going to cut this out of my diet, I'm going to take that out. Um, so how do, what, what do you think is that sticking point for people though, the people that don't necessarily, I don't want to use the word convert because it sounds too religious, but <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like the people that don't, that don't, um, that don't, that don't want to go that route yet. Like, what do you think is that sticking point for them? Well, it always starts out with the kind of like you know, the manly man argument of like, you know, real men eat meat. That's, that's what always starts out with. John I, Wayne, I remember kind of, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I used to make, my sister's been vegan for 20 years she's two younger two she years got, younger you than me. turned on to it right well she was the first person i ever met that was like you know she was a vegetarian uh, no she was actually a vegan when we were in high school and i remember like you know i'd, I'd eat you know turkey over thanksgiving and i kind of make fun of her and eat and i was like just hassler and, and that's generally the, the first kind of mentality that i get with bands you know they come in they say you know what i mean you're that's just the you know that's just like you know it's, it's not you're not a man unless you eat meat that whole argument and and then um you know, because I, the, the, I just say I don't have meat in my house and I have the studios at my house. So it's like one of those things. If you guys, we, we take a lunch break, you guys can go out and get food, do whatever you want. But it's like I just don't want it in the, in the house. It's just mm -hmm. I just don't want it there. And and so then generally they'll, they'll kind of say, dude, that's like pretty, you know, Hitler-esque of you to kind of take that stance. <laughs> and that's kind of when I open up the door say, I understand because I was there. I used to make fun of my sister and we'll talk about it or whatever. And then, you know, Meet Your Meat's like 11 minutes long, you know, and it just kind of shows, you know, maybe like two minutes of kind of, you know, every animal, how they're raised and how they're killed, you know, in the end. And, you know, at the end of the video, it's it's, it's really hard for any guy, for anyone to say, okay, I don't see where you're coming from anymore because they go, none of the animals in, in the video, none, no animal ever like wants to die. They're not like rushing towards the you know the 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 um the killing floor you know they they never do that so it's like once they see the footage then they start to kind of say, oh, is this, does this happen everywhere? Is this just like a rare case? And mm -hmm. then we can start talking about like, you know, um, I guess just kind of, you know, animal welfare sort of issues. And, it, mm -hmm. and, you know, little by little, I'll take them out to, you know, eat and show them that, you know, the food doesn't have to be like, you know, it's not just like raw broccoli, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. there's like the soy, the fake meats, like you can get like, I mean, pretty much anything, you know, whether it's like, you know, vegan shrimp or vegan chicken, that's kind of like it did the texture and sure. it, it kind of tastes the same, but it's just made out of soy protein rather than out of, you know, dead animals. And so, you know, we kind of go into, into that stuff. I mean, and not, I mean, it's not like I ever feel like, like you said, it's like, I'm not. I mean, my, my intent is to just save, really just to save animals, animals from having to suffer, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. essentially, because they say, you know, I think it's about 300 and um, 80 animals a year, they say a, a vegan doesn't eat, you know, by, you know, go, by going vegetarian or vegan. And so, I, I mean, I kind of try and take that stance of like, look, my, my, my whole point is to really kind of, you know, stop this. And, and in the end, it's my, my argument isn't about like what tastes good or what, um, you know, what, uh, what humans are supposed to eat. Because in the end, I mean, if I was out there and if, you know, if, it, if everything, if we lost power and I was out there, I mean, I, I'm sure I would to survive, I would, I would kill an animal, you mm -hmm. know, with, with that. But that's not what it's like in a slaughterhouse. It's like the life they live before they're killed is what's so wrong about like, you know, factory farming and about how animals are raised for food. I mean, that's my main thing is like that, that's what shouldn't happen. I mean, plus they don't even, I mean, all the stuff that comes along with being vegetarian and vegan, you know, I mean, I saw the inconvenient truth and it's yeah. like, they say that, um, you know, 80% of the greenhouse effects in these, and these gases are from factory farms. 80 
right. and that never gets raised in any of these movies. Like you know, the um, I watched the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, and I've seen mm-hmm. all all these, and it's like, how you know, how can Al Gore be a rancher? And yet still say he cares that much about global warming. When when global warming supposedly, you know, from the greenhouse gases, 80% of them come from factory farms and cutting down, the, you know, all the rainforest, which is resupplying us with, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, comes, those are all byproducts of like not. And a lot of them are subsidized. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. to me, it's just. It's just it's just fr- it's, fr- it's frustrating to have to start from scratch because a lot of a lot of bands that I work with kind of have no they have no education whatsoever because obviously schools aren't going to you know teach kids about animal welfare they don't you know they, you know they're getting subsidized by the meat industry because that's where who who gives them their food you know so so tomorrow night I got to go to the grocery store and get my food my my refrigerator is bare and I don't really eat a lot of red meat at all um, but I do eat chicken and, and turkey and um, so. Uh, we don't have the DVD in front of us, mm-hmm. so give me. And you kind of talked about it a little bit. You start talking about the the factory farms and so forth. Um, give me, give me, give me something that you would say to a band member to get me to think a little bit differently before I pick up that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, especially maybe I don't know. Yeah. Well, like egg farms, like the the where the, where the animals are raised are in uh, these crates that are the size of a microwave oven, and they put six chickens in these these microwave oven sized crates for their entire life. They can never spread a wing. You know, they can never feel like you know chickens generally um, dust bathe, so they're used to like scratching on the ground. That's how they're kind of you know how they were made, and they're they're only on their their feet actually grow into the into the wire mesh. And the USDA claims that you could have ten percent of feces because what happens in the killing on the killing floor is when they actually kill the animal. A lot of times, the, the, instead of like slicing their throat, which is usually how they're they'll kill it, it'll slice up their body, and so they're you know um, whatever's in their stomach kind of gets let out on the killing floor, and, and all mm-hmm. the feces and you know all the their innards kind of gets put in with the rest of it and, and and people that are working at slaughterhouses they don't give they don't literally give a shit they just right. put it all together so the usda says 10 percent is legal to eat of poo so typically if you're kind of unless i mean i guess unless you're shopping at whole foods or you know probably more organic right. you know organic stuff you're 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 probably eating 10 percent of your food is poo um which to me it doesn't really whet my appetite that much regardless <laughs> you know but i mean i don't i mean to my, my biggest thing is just you know try i mean if you haven't tried like you know tofurkey slices or you know um you know any kind of you know morning star or, or garden burger products or you know boca burgers if you haven't tried it i mean it's just kind of like, you know, contempt prior to investigation. You don't know, you know, you don't know what it's going to taste like. You think it's, you know, you're going to, um, it's going to taste bad or you're going to not get enough protein. It's exactly the opposite. You're going to get the exact right kind of protein. You know, that's why they say uh, obesity in America is because people eat, you know, it's like three McDonald's a day. You know, it's like you, you, you want, once you eat a certain amount of protein, it just turns to fat, you know, and people are eating so much meat, you know, that it just turns to fat. And that's why there's so much obesity going on in America's because the over kind of saturation of this, you know, the meat market or whatever you want to call it, you know. Do you think that, you know, there's a there's a book out by Alan uh, Weissman called The World Without Us right now, and National Geographic Channel has a show out that's, I think it's basically based on that, and it's like, what would the world be like without humans? And basically how everything falls apart after so many years and so forth. Um, is, there, is it kind of the argument that living with animals and human beings being animals that, that it's like is it kind of a black or white situation? Like we're never going to really be able to cohabit the planet together. That really the only way animals are ultimately going to be safe is 
the humans kind of pack up and split like Wally and. <laughs> Dude, I tried watching ten minutes of that movie with my son actually, and it, I just I couldn't do it. Have you seen it? No, I've not seen it yet. You couldn't do it because you say adults love that movie. I know. I, maybe I didn't get to the good part. I, I, I sat there about fifteen <laughs> minutes, and it was like this trash compactor. How I don't know. I couldn't feel compassion. <laughs> but, but the panda bear movie is pretty good but um there's a song in there someplace yeah yeah for, for sure but <laughs> i i mean i i don't know about that i mean i i just think if you look back on american history and i i feel like i mean you know native americans certainly like you know co-inhabited this planet with them with people i just don't think you know with how many do we have now eight billion seven billion people i mean yeah, i don't, I don't know how many, i mean it's like I mean, they, there's more people alive today than have died since the beginning of mankind. So I just, I, I can't see unless some, you know, like, you know, mad cow or some, you know, some crazy thing comes along that people get really sick and die off, you know, eating fast food, that people won't have a global, a changing of a global consciousness unless something really drastic happens. I can't see it. But I mean, I just, I, I just believe that, um, you know, whatever alien created us and life and this whole thing here that like you know our purpose you know isn't to um you know be able to you know enslave and use animals for you know whatever circuses or food or entertainment or whatever this is not what i mean we're we are animals you know because we have thumbs doesn't give a, give me the right to go you know torture or beat up like a three-year-old kid and take whatever he has you know just because i can do it doesn't make it right to do it mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i just believe that every animal on this planet has its own purpose and obviously you know we are we have the dominion over that we we can we we do it because the law says it's okay but to me ethically it's not okay mm -hmm. you know and so i mean i mean it's a tough question i mean probably you're right that i i don't think that there's going to be some big you know global consciousness or some big decision made that you know all of a sudden you know we're not going to start you know keep you know breeding cows to eat them and you know same thing with chickens and all that stuff you know and, and unless something really drastic happens you know is that kind of where like a lot of movements seem to kind of collapse within themselves because people lose their patience for the incremental wins and they yeah. kind of expect everything to be boom one you know constitution is saved instead of well sometimes you got to incrementally save it yeah I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, stuff that happened that, you know, like, you know, the, um, the gestation crates for the pigs that have been, you know, they're illegal in like four states now. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and watching like, you know, it's, you know, some cities like San Francisco be, have no kill shelters and there's some in, in, in Minneapolis and it's spreading and that sort of like, you know, and veal being outlawed in certain cities, I mean, mm. th that sort of mentality gives me hope. But yet, you know, more people eat meat today than have ever. I mean, there's more animals killed for, you know, food than have ever now because there's more people, you know, and plus McDonald's is starting to get to. Indian and other, you know, places yeah, that yeah. used to be, you know, kind of, you know, vegetarian countries for it to a certain extent. But I mean, to me, I mean, it's, it's, it's basic stuff. You know, you, when, when people study, you know, vegetarian cultures, you know, there's never any case of colon cancer and like, you know, people live to be like, you know, 9,500 and have really great lives. And it's like, you know, you come to America and people just die, you know, all the diseases that we have because of the, the kind of foods that we eat. I mean, it's just, it's not brain surgery to me. It's really easy, you know, easy stuff. 73 years old and you're done. Yep. Um, uh, one of my favorite songs by you guys is Spokesman, and uh, I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about uh, an anti-flag show uh, a couple years ago where uh, you know Justin was kind of up there on the stage doing you know talking about Bush, and this was like second year of the Iraq War, and so there was still kind of a lot of people. The kids were still kind of like in between; they didn't know whether to hate him or be supportive and whatever. And Justin was going and doing his thing, and some guy in the back room said, "Shut the fuck up and play music." So. You know, you're known for being 
uh, vocal on stage and you talk about veganism, you talk about politics, you talk about caring about the world around you, taking care, better care of yourself, how do you not end up being that caricature? Where you're, where's that line for a musician? And how far sh- are, should you, and maybe this kind of goes back to punk rock philosophy, punk philosophy, period, not rock necessarily. Where do you go in that part where you can take that line so far before you start jeopardizing your career financially, or does it not matter? You got to do what's right. Well, I mean, I got to do what's right. And I, I absolutely feel like it, my stance on, on animal rights has definitely affected our audience for sure. Really? You know, I mean, I, in I, a positive I, way. Well, I mean, in a positive way, to, I mean, Pete has told me that the, the video I made for Free Me, which is kind of like this, you know, the song I wrote, the, the main song I wrote about animal rights has turned more people in more young people vegetarian than anything else in the history of the animal rights movement. So That's amazing. I mean, to me, that's great. I mean, I really feel that's the thing I've probably I'm probably most proudest of, and you know, in in my life as far as you know the the, the career goldfinger. But, um, but there's all the the, the the negative side is people like you know they're like you know dude we you know, uh, you know they 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 just want to they just want to fight. You know, people just come up to me and they just want to fight. They're just like you know if if we weren't meant to eat meat we wouldn't do it. And if if you know cows didn't taste so good why why aren't we supposed to? You know, all the kind of shit that people want to you know throw throw in the mix. And it's like. Doing it long enough, I, I just don't really have, you know, time or patience or the kind of the energy. You know, I can tell if someone's willing to, to actually have a discussion with me about mm-hmm. animal, animal rights. And if I can tell if someone just wants to fight. But as far as our career and like, you know, I knew that it would be a losing battle financially by talking, by bringing animal rights into the music. Because, you know, our first record is all relationship oriented stuff. It's just like love songs, essentially, you know, and mm-hmm. that's kind of how we establish ourselves. And me bringing in animal rights to so much of our music and, and like the, the, the bonus footage and all the stuff that comes along with it i knew it was going to be you know a struggle especially for the other guys like two of the other guys aren't vegetarian and they're just like you know dude i don't you know i don't want to hear this stuff anymore you know but i mean spokesman in 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 particular is funny because i've been hassled for that song because i mean the first day i worked with ashley simpson i played her meet your meat the first day i I worked with her i'm like because they they came from this texas i guess you know whatever you know meat eating family and and jessica you know jessica sent the fucking bitches wearing whatever like you know real women real women eat meat or whatever this shit you know (laughs) is going on with her and it's like um so that's the first thing I did because I knew that her sister wore, wore fur and so I showed her all this fur footage and, and that was the first thing I did and, and spokesman have been hassled a lot because it's like you know I don't want to hear spokesman where I'm actually writing music for other people which is kind of you know you know people call, would say I could be a hypocrite for that but it's like you know at the time like you were talking about earlier with all the boy bands and I'm just like man I just don't I don't want I at the time I'm like I do not want to hear any more of this and that's what kind of inspired me to wrote that write that song but you know um, but I really do feel like you know having a microphone it is my duty to speak my truth you know mm-hmm. and in animal rights is certainly my truth so for for our listeners if there was a if there, are there any specific websites that you like to tell people you know man go to this website for, and you can learn about animal cruelty you can learn about veganism oh yeah dude PETA.org is the one. I mean, that, that they have, I mean, you can click on PETA TV and you can watch videos of, I mean, every single, like, you know, whether it's dissection in classes or, you know, overfishing the oceans, anything. You can get all the information and watch any kind of footage you need to. And my, and this is the last question, but the, and my other favorite song of you guys was actually on a PETA compilation, Fuck Tech Nugent. Uh-huh. And there was actually two versions of that, wasn't Wasn't there an update? There was a Farrah Fawcett, Fawcett version, version. Right, right. and then there was the Jennifer Lopez I'm wondering, version. are you guys going to update it again? I mean, it's, it seems about, you could possibly do it. You're probably right. I mean, I was actually thinking. Fuck Paris Hilton, la, 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 you yeah. know what I mean? You could do it. I, actually, she's actually all right. I just met her. <laughs> I just met Paris Hilton, and she's, she's actually like open-minded. She's never worn fur, and she's, I mean, she's actually actually like as far as like the spectrum goes of celebrities that like you know mm-hmm. d- 
don't give a fuck to celebrities that really care. Um, I mean, she's, I guess she's probably like maybe a little more towards the caring side. You oh, know? that's good. Um, it's but, always nice to know somebody that you kind of grow to hate and you kind of go, wow, they actually are a decent person. Yeah. I mean, just because she's, she's dating Benji, who's a really good friend of mine. Right, right. I, I can I, understand. You know, yeah. I met her, but I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, whatever. I just went over there to hang out with him, but yeah. she was actually just, just a super nice person and whatever, like all the stuff that I, I thought it was going to be. I mean, I guess there was part of that, but I mean, she seems super sweet, but I mean, I definitely need to update it. I'll <laughs> I'll probably do a Jessica Simpson version, you know, because she's got this big <laughs> war with, I guess, Carrie Underwood's a vegetarian, and she used to date her boy, her, Jessica's boy. I, I, every time I fly, I, all I read is fucking Us Weekly. So it's like, I mean, because I'm up in the air, and I'm like, I just don't want to like, get all anxious. So I just read like the most, like, you know, common denominator, ma like People Magazine, you know what I mean? So I know, that's how I know. It was just funny, stuff. because the, the day we were doing this, um, I got a press release this morning saying that Ted Nugent is celebrating his 6,000th show. And he just did it uh, July fourth in Detroit. Yeah, and he's got a uh, he's got a new book coming out. I just wanted to kind of give you the update on him, so you thanks. So, you know, so for the next it, yeah. for the next thing, comprising ten chapters on how to fix America, and it's titled uh, <laughs> "Ted White and Blue: The Nugent Manifesto," and uh, he's also got a uh, movie coming out, uh, "Beer for My Horses," and he has a new song out called "I Am the NRA." So you know, awesome, yeah. I mean, what uh, what, what rhymes with NRA? <laughs> <laughs> I, I def, you know, I definitely did some research on on Ted Nugent before I, I wrote that song, and I, mean, I guess I was inspired because he had that show on VH1, and a mm. really good friend of mine was the token vegan on the show. This girl, <laughs> and she was definitely the kind of, you know, the the, the the kind of like real overly emotional vegan that most people think that's what vegans are, like just super kind of skinny and mm -hmm. you know just like, oh, cry cry about it. And he, <laughs> and I just watched him put deer fat in her vegan dish and then she, uh, she ate it and I was like and I watched you know her kid like broke an egg on her head to w an egg on her head to wake her up this one day I'm like and then I just found out you know he spit on a bunch of my friends they're doing a, a fur protest in front of Neiman Marcus in San Francisco and he oh, was wow. there and he was just randomly there shopping came out and, and spit on him and it's just like Dude, if you're so American, fucking these people, I mean, freedom of speech, brother, you know, that's what we're here to be able to, you know, do. And it's just like, and I, I found out that he had, um, you know, he was so scared to go to Vietnam. He actually shit in, a, shit in his own pants for three or four days before he went to the draft and said, and, and, and pleaded crazy to avoid Vietnam because he was so fucking scared. And it's like, dude, really? Really? You know I mean? If that's the kind of guy that you really are, I mean, fucking at least admit that, you know, I don't know. I, so I was just inspired to write this. I mean, and in the end, Ted Nugent isn't really, I mean, the McDonald's is the true enemy of, of, of the environment and of, you know, of the animals. I mean, you know, Ted Nugent going out there and, and killing the animal that lived his whole life in the wild is much better than a slaughterhouse <laughs> killing. You know, I mean, I'm, I, but I just thought it was just like, I was just, you know, like every song should be, you should be, in, be able to write a song to be inspired by the moment and just write it, you know? And maybe Cheney stole some of his ideas to get out of Vietnam. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in, and uh, best of luck with the rest of the tour and uh, and the next projects you're working on. Thank you. Thanks, John.
happy girls by killing a little squirrel. Jennifer Lopez for wearing fucking twat. She likes to eat dead cats. She thinks it's cool to wear eyelashes of dead foxes. Cause she thinks it hides the pounds. She's a bitch. She's a bad fucker. AP Podcasts are recorded at Lava Room Recording Studio in Cleveland, Ohio, a New York City quality studio at Cleveland Prices. Check out www.lavaroomrecording.com. For more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Robert Tenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is all my fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com/slash Mike Shea AP. That's S H E A like the stadium AP.